Aiden and his family, and uh, we rejoice that uh, all of you have joined us in worship this morning. Um, if you have your Bibles, you might open them with me to 2 Peter, verses 1 through 4. We've been here now for four weeks, um, looking at um, some of the big, broad themes that are at the heart of this passage. Um, this morning, we want to begin to unpack that, if you will, and to see how it fits together and applies to our life in this most important matter. So if you have your Bibles, stand with me as we uh, read God's Word. Even better, let's try to say it from memory as much as we can. I do it really good in the car. Let's see how I do it now. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing to our own by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. That phrase, by our God of Savior Jesus Christ, in the Greek, that's one person. It's one of the most explicit places in the Bible. You will find Peter declaring the absolute Godhead, the absolute divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. He says his divine power has granted to y'all, you should know this one now, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. Then verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Thank you, Father, for this, your word. Help us to understand it. Um, speak it to us. Help us to hear you. And may it put some things in our heart and life today that are needed as we seek to live it out. In Jesus' name, amen. This passage deals to do with what God's expectations are, what the possibilities are, and there are expectations and possibilities that are meant for every single one of us. So my procedure this morning is simply to, to start working through all these many different phrases, and there's a lot of phrases. They're very rich. They're stacked one upon the other upon the other, and that makes it both wonderful, but it makes it challenging. So I want you to, to think this morning that maybe we look at something like we would look at... Um, uh, a wonderful new thing we've gotten, and we've got to put it together. And the first thing you got to do, you got to get it out of the box, and you got to lay the parts out and see what they are. So we'll start that way. Um, so let's begin the unboxing. I can hardly wait to see how this turns out. I'm not sure at all. First of all, he says to those, he's writing to a group of Christians. I assume, they're not identified here, I assume they're the same Christians that he's writing to in 1 Peter. They're a group of Christians dispersed around what we would call Turkey today, Asia Minor. And he says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing to our own. Now here's Peter. Here's the, here's the guy who preached the sermon on Pentecost. Here's the acknowledged head of the church, if you will. Here's Peter who's walked on water, who's raised dead people, and he speaks to some shepherd boy out of Cappadocia who's been told about Jesus and the Spirit of God's made him realize that he would be his Savior and he's trusted him. He says, you have a faith of an equal standing to our own. Gentile though that you are, little kid that you are, he says, what you've got is the thing. It's the matters more than anything else you know in life. He says, what you received is faith. And with that faith has come righteousness. So we start with faith and righteousness. Just pack it all up here. Faith and righteousness. I'm so thankful for the gospel. I'm thankful that when I got saved, I not only got my sins forgiven, I not only got the slate white clean, but far more than that, the very righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ was counted towards me. When God deals with me, when he looks at me, he sees me through the prism of the very righteousness of Jesus. It's a big difference between just having your, your, your mistakes and your sins and your, your grievous things taken away. It's another thing to be made and declared righteous by the living God. And all that happens in an instant. The moment Aiden put his faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteousness of Jesus Christ became his. And that is meant to have a big impact over the rest of his life and of your life as well. Well, this 
salvation that God gives us is begins in a moment, but it's meant to continue. We speak of this often. It is justification and it's sanctification, the ongoing process, and one day it's glorification. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul speaks to the Corinthians. He said, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. That's past tense. If you're a Christian here, there's some point in your past tense where you were born again when you became a follower of Jesus Christ and you were saved. And then he says, in which you also stand. That was your present tense. It's your life now. And he says, by which, in verse 2, you are being saved. So it's what God is doing now in this life, in this work of sanctification, in making you like Christ, and one day he's going to finish it all the way when you get to glory and to heaven. Well, most of the rest of what we're going to read now as Peter speaks is not the beginning, but it's that, it's that continuing on. It's that, that work of becoming like Christ. I, uh, I, I just have to ask this before we get into the rest of this. I wonder how this word of, of God's um, work in us is, is continuing and ongoing. I, I just wonder how it strikes you this morning. There are two errors that people can fall in. There's the, the idealist, which I hope maybe there are some of you, that would probably be refreshing. It's often associated with younger Christians, younger people sometimes, who have a vision that they are just, just one good quiet time, one wonderful truth away, one, one glorious experience, and, and they're going to make enormous roaring growth automatically in Christ. And I've indeed seen young Christians grow enormously and God do powerful things in their life. And yet, the truth is, much of the Christian life doesn't always happen immediately and it's not always spectacular. And, and a person in that situation may not have a real appreciation of the real battle that's ahead of them, of, of indwelling sin and how difficult that's going to be to, to do it, get it all of our life completely. So there's the idealist. But the one I think we're more likely to fall on the other end of that spectrum are the cynics. Those of us have been around Christians and Christianity and, and church and Quite honestly, we're not looking to any heroes to become like them or to imagine we could because, quite honestly, we're suspected every person we really admire, if we probably knew the whole truth, there's a lot of really deep, dark, secret sins there, you know? And we really just, uh, we don't look to see God do much great in, in our hearts and our lives. And so sermons don't really impact us very much. And we can open the Bible, but we really don't take it too seriously because we don't expect too much there. The idealist may underestimate the power in dwelling sin, but the, the cynic underestimates the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to do His work. And I pray that you will this morning be ready to receive this Word. I, I need encouragement. I need to be called on things where I'm... I want to make excuses, but I also need the hope to know that God is going to keep working and get His work done in my life and yours. Well, he says immediately to these Christians, it's a word of greeting, but it's more than that. It's the whole theme of the book. Remember, verse 2 is the very also this very last sentence of this letter that Peter reads. This is his theme. Grace and peace to you be multiplied in your life through the knowledge of our God and the Lord Jesus. May grace and peace be acknowledged. Grace is not just that, that fact that God sets aside our sin and Jesus pays for it, but grace is an actual power that works in our life, that that, that it, pushes us towards godliness. So this morning we have grace and peace that he brings. Peace, of course, is that shalom, that, that quality of life that God brings. That's the beginning of the Christian life, but it's meant to grow and grow and grow and become more prominent. And then we come to verse 3, and he talks about divine power. Divine power. The power of the Lord Jesus Christ that is marvelous and strong and important in our lives. So, this morning I want to invite our children to come and join me on the platform. Uh, we're going to talk about that divine power. I've got some folks that are going to help me do that. So, uh, boys and girls, if you'd come up here on the platform and uh, sit over on this part of the stage, if you would. Sit right over here. thought I'd give you some candy since it worked so well last week, right? So um, 
I was looking for gummy bears. I couldn't find any gummy bears, but I tell you what I have, gummy worms. So um, everybody can have one gummy worm, or if they're stuck together, you can have two gummy words. It looks like they are. So um, tell you what, would you help distribute just everybody one piece of candy? Just pass it around and give everybody one. Now, does it look like I'm being stingy again? No. Maybe a little bit, but I want you to, th- I want you to look at that really carefully, okay? Thank you. Keep that seat. You'll need it again later, trust me. Uh, um, these gummy bears, you may not think is very powerful, but I want to show you how powerful they are. In fact, I can't do it, but I have a friend here who's going to help me illustrate how powerful a gummy bear or gummy worm is. He's uh, uh, my friend Larry Hoffaditz. He is, uh, among other things, a scientist, and he is coming to illustrate the power of a gummy bear. Got fire going there, my goodness. I'm going to show you how much power, well, first of all, you know Pastor Frank can be so stingy, right? How many gummy bears did he give you? One. How many of you have eaten a whole handful of gummy bears? How many a whole bag? Yeah. I'm going to show you how much power is in one gummy bear. Pretty cool, right? Give him a hand. As a... If you were to touch this test tube, it give you a third degree burn. How much power in a gummy bear? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, boys and girls. So you can go back to your seats. Reminded that uh, the creator who can even put all that in one gummy bear has put great power and great uh, things in everything he's made, but he is a God of great power. And uh, I love Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So we're going to talk about God's divine power this morning. Um, it comes from those who put their faith in Christ, who have been made righteous by him. And uh, in that divine power, God does some amazing things, although it may not look like what happens in the test tube over here. Uh, now, what I'm going to do is we talk about, lay out these things we've been talking about for weeks, break them apart. Uh, as we do that, I've given you on the back of your worship bowl a little diagram. I've tried to put this in a, almost a mechanical framework to think about how we get divine power to us. And uh, so as we walk through this, if you have a pen, if you're prone to do this, I want you to fill that out as we go forward, okay? Now, he says that that divine power is meant to produce all things, all things. Now, the all things that he speaks of, of course, is the um, godliness and all of life. He says, I'll give you all things for godliness and life. We talked about that last week as we talked about the nature of God being generous, that he doesn't just give us a little bit to get us saved, but he gives us all that we need to grow in him and become mature in him and to accomplish all that he wants to done. Now that all things come to us, it becomes ours through another vehicle, through another very important thing. In fact, it's so important, he mentions it twice. He says it in verse 2 when he talks about how grace and peace come into our life. And then he says this power comes to our life. It's through the knowledge of him, through the knowledge of him. Um, so through the knowledge of him God's power for all things comes to us through the knowledge of him 
This knowledge, of course, is not intellectual knowledge. It's not just theological knowledge. It is, more importantly, it is personal knowledge. It is, it is knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, experiencing him in your life. And he says this knowledge of him that we have is the knowledge of him who calls us by his glory and his excellence. Who calls us by his glory and his excellence. That is what we see in him, what we're learning about him, how glorious and excellent that he actually is. And then finally, he says, from that glory and that excellence, he has given to us, he has provided for us, he has granted to us his precious and great promises. These promises, I think, may be the key to this whole passage in terms of actually applying it effectively and helpfully in your life and mine, to know these uh, promises of God, to experience them, to make them yours. We'll talk much about that as we think about the promises of God in our life. So the promises of God that are both precious and glorious. And then, finally, he comes to um, what these promises lead to what they give us, what they produce in our life, and it's two things. One's positive, one's negative. Before we do the positive one, I'm going to skip to the, to the bottom one, to the word corruption. We escape from a corruption. Remember when we were talking about Lot and telling his story, there finally came a point where the Bible says God provided a way of escape for Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah. There was lots of corruption, both in Lot's heart and in there, but he provided a way of escape. For Lot. Well, he has provided a way of escape for us from what he calls corruption. I, uh, a couple weeks ago, several weeks ago, I was getting ready to make a trip. It was going to be an overnight trip, and I was already late in the day. I needed to get off. I was ready to go, packed up, ready to go. As I got ready to pull out, uh, I remembered uh, my fish. I have a little fish pond, and I feed them about every two or three days. I haven't fed them in three days, and I had to pull back in, give my little fish some food. Well, I went over to the fish pond to give them their food, and I noticed one of my koi, the oldest one I had like 10 years, about this size, was floating. My koi had died. I have another one, but that one. Well, here's the problem. It's a big old fish, and I got to leave. I'm all dressed to go. I'm already running late. I don't have time. What am I going to do? I, I don't even know where I'd go bury it someplace in the yard. And so what, what to do? My wife wasn't home at the time. So I went, to, I went in, and I got a garbage bag, and I put it in a garbage bag, and tied it up and put it in the garage. <laughs> Seemed reasonable to me. So about 28 hours later, I come home. And my wife said, there's something horrible in the garage. Actually, a few days before that, we've, we've had some rats show up around our house and construction and everything. And so... Um, we put some boxes with bait in it. I've learned that from a very smart man in our church. And, and uh, so I had this rat trap with a, it's just basically a rat goes in and eats some of it, goes out and he dies. Well, such a big rat had gotten in my rat trap. He got in there, ate some of it, but he was so fat he couldn't get out. And he'd been in there about five days. Maggots, all of that. In fact, in fact... I brought it with me. It's getting a little juicy now, but uh, when we read the word corruption here in verse 4, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about rot, decay, things that have become gross and disgusting. We're talking about the brokenness of this world. And he says, there's a way, this, this is at work in our life. This corruption is what sin wants to do to you and what it is doing to you. It's taking everything good, every relationship, everything that, 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 how God made you to be what he made you to be and trying to corrupt it. It does it through sinful desires. You see, the world God made is a good world. God said over and over in the first chapter of the Bible, it is good, it is good. What makes it corrupt, what, what turns it into something that is hideous and, and we know about a lot of hideous things in this world, don't we? we we've, we've tasted of them. We're, some of us are caught in them right now. It's the corruption that comes from sinful desires. And before we're done here, for all the good things the Lord's going to bring, we've got to do something to get rid of, to escape from. Ooh. Uh, does that have a leak? From these sinful desires and their corrupting nature. Well, then the other part here, the, the, the final part that we come to this morning is the divine 
nature. The, the nature of God that he puts within us. This is a word that can be a little confusing and uh, actually it's a little troubling. It doesn't quite uh, even seem right to say that we have the divine nature, but that's exactly what Peter says. Uh, we ought to be very clear. We won't say as much about this as we'll need to say. Next week we'll get to more of it. But when we say we have the divine nature, we're talking about, I think what Paul means when he talks about Christ in you, when he says, uh, I've been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives within me. The life I now live, I live by, by faith in the Son of God who, who saved me and delivers me and, and working in my life. It is, it is not that we become God. That I get the divine nature does not mean to ever change my status as a creature of, of God, but it does change that the character of God, the, the qualities of God, become to seep in and permeate my life. So here we are, these, these characters of God, these wonderful truths laid out here for us here in this passage of Scripture. There's something about what God does in our life that is bigger, is more than we expect. When you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, aiding this morning, professing his faith, following the Lord Jesus, just a simple thing. A little boy trusts Christ. He knows he's a sinner. He receives salvation in Jesus Christ and trusts him. He's declared right. seems like a small thing. But before it's done, it shapes everything for now and for eternity. It's bigger than it looks. It means more than we can imagine. It's like, it's like the Chronicles of Narnia where they go into Aslan's barn. Aslan's the figure of Christ. And they go into the barn, and the barn's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. I think Peter's trying to get that picture for us here. All these things that come because we're saved and we have power in Christ. Now let's walk through some of this. Let's talk about this divine nature. Uh, what I want us to do is we, I've asked you to lay it out there in a rather mechanical way. There's nothing mechanical about this. This is all relational. But there is, there is a picture here that we want to get of how, how the divine power works its way, does all things that are needed. It does it all through the knowledge of him. It leads us to precious and great promises that come and flow out of the excellence of who he is as we see that, as we experience that. Then we'd have his divine nature and we have his grace and peace multiplying, explode in our life. Let's talk through that once again this morning as we think through some of it for our own lives. When we talk about the Christian life being a uh, being filled and directed and powered by the, the divine power of God, we're saying something important. We're saying that the Christian life is a supernatural life. That is, there has to be something outside of you, outside of me, for us to live this life. If the power of God doesn't show up and work in your life, then you're missing out. In fact, you're missing out probably on the whole thing. I fear there's many people who have their correct orthodoxy. They believe the right stuff. They have good theology, but they've never experienced the power of God. They've never known what the Holy Spirit to come and to open their eyes, what they see what they couldn't see. They've never had their hearts reborn in Jesus Christ. If all that you needed was to believe the right things, then all the devil and his demons would be saved. They have perfect orthodoxy. No, you need the power of God at work. But he does it to save us, and he does it to bring us to himself. Now, what is this power like? How do we understand how this power of God works in our life? Kevin DeYoung offers some helpful pictures that I want to use this morning. He says, first of all, it's not like the, the power you might associate with a hamster wheel. Um, that is, some people have the idea that God saves me, and then he gives me all the things I need. He gives me the Bible. Uh, he gives me prayer. He gives me the church. He gives me all these things. And now he's given me all this stuff, and i got to get on and, and spin, 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 with all of my might, trying to do all that I'm supposed to do until I just can't go any further. And often feeling just like a hamster, I'm not getting anywhere very fast. That is not the power of God. God doesn't plop us down and say, just run, do all you can. Come on, boys, run, run, run. It's not a hamster wheel, so that's not it. Cross that one out. Neither is it the power you might think of in an escalator. You know, an escalator is great. You just go step on it, and it just carries you up. There you are going up. Watch those other people coming down. Ha-ha, I'm moving up. Just, it's not that either. There is effort to be made in the Christian life. You get to verse 5 here. He's going to talk about make every effort in this business of growing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I like the image. I think it's a better image, not a, not a hamster wheel, not an escalator, but I like the image of a car. I left the Pioneer campus to come over here. I took my car. Now, my car had the engine. It had the gas. It had all the power, had the electricity. Everything that I needed to get here was in that car, but I still had to get in the car. 
I had to turn the ignition. I had to steer it. I had to guide it. I had to be a part of it. It wasn't my power that got me here, but I had to engage in it. And that's the way the Christian life is. Ultimately, it is the power of God who accomplishes things, but it is indeed the Lord Jesus calls us to join in that, to be part of that. Now, you know, if someone's want to be saved, like if you're here this morning, you're ready to follow Christ, then I want to tell you, there's nothing you do at that moment to earn anything. I, I wouldn't say to you this morning, now to, to begin this Christian life, you've got to fix this and fix that and stop doing this and do that. When you do all that, then we'll talk about you can get saved and then we'll baptize you too. That, no, the Christian life doesn't start that way. But as it continues in, in sanctification, there you do engage in it. It is still the power of God. You can't do it yourself, but it is still you to engage it, you to take your part, you to do the work that God's called you to do. Um, when Larry and I were practicing his little uh, science experiment for us, I just wanted to make sure he wasn't going to blow us all up. And, uh, but we had a wonderful conversation, and he mentioned how all of this reminds him of his one of his favorite Bible verses. I bet it is yours too, Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. So it is the power of God. Now here's the reality, folks. You can be a Christian. You can be saved. But you can get unplugged. All that power is available. It's there for you. But you can get unplugged. You can try to just ignore God and leave him out, disconnect yourself, get busy about your own agenda. You tend to do that every day anyway, don't you? That's the easiest thing to do. You wake up, what's my schedule today? Who am I going to see today? Where am I going to go today? I wonder what's going to happen to me today. You wake up, if your natural fallen state apart, you connect with the Lord Jesus Christ, then you're, you, just, you live a life where you're the center of the universe. That's, and that's where the corruption starts. You know, that's the reason every time I drive in a car when I'm in that state, which is sorrowfully too often, people are either driving too fast or too slow. They all are. I'm the center of the universe. Why don't they drive the speed I think we ought to be going? That's, that's, that's where it all begins. And, and, and we need to do those things that would call us to Christ, to live for Him and to stand for Him. Um, now, I said this morning that this, don't think of this too mechanically. Let's, let's put this in more personal terms. This power, this divine power that is ours in Christ. Do you remember the story? We've told it many times. Of, you've read it many times. John chapter 4, that woman of Samaria. Jesus' disciples have gone into the little village. He's out there by the well. And here comes this woman in the middle of the day. Normally women came in the afternoon where it's cool or in the morning where it's cool. They usually came in groups. Here she comes all alone. And as we get into the story, there's a backstory here. There's quite a story here. There's a reason she's coming alone. She probably wants to be alone, not to mention nobody really wants to hang out with her. I don't know that she really wanted to talk. I don't think she did. But here's this guy. He's waiting for her. And um, right away he asks her, for a drink of water, and she's, what do you, you're asking me, and, and I'm a Samaritan woman, you're a man, and, and then Jesus gets right to the point. He just, just like Peter does in his letter, he gets right to it. He says, if you knew who we were talking to, you would ask me for living water. It's right to her deepest needs. And he will continue that conversation with her, and he will keep pushing, pushing down to the, the real thing at the heart of her life. Now, Jesus doesn't reply when, when all this stuff gets surfaced and all this stuff is exposed and we find out all the terrible mistakes she's making in her life. Jesus doesn't say, now let me offer you some advice here, lady. Let me tell you how to fix some things. You've got to stop doing this and stop doing that. That's not what he does. He gets right to the heart of it. He says, what you need is the water that I can offer you, water welling up to eternal life. You came here thirsty, but there's a deeper thirst in your life, and I can meet that need. I can show you how life is like when you worship God in spirit and truth. And it's not tied just to a building, just to an occasion, just to a point in, in your week. It's where your life is lived that way. Before it's done, she comes to meet this living God through Jesus. Her whole village, many of them come believers and followers of Jesus as well. Because her deepest needs have been met in Him. My friends... If you come to church on Sunday mornings, if you came to church this morning thinking, I just need a little pep talk, I need a little bit of motivation, maybe a couple of life hacks, a little, little thing to help me do better here and improve there, that's not what you need. You need power, the power of the living God. 
You need the water of, of eternal life that springs up. Everything else is not enough. All the things you keep going for and looking for, trying to satisfy your thirst, they're, they're, they're like, like drinking sand. They're like guys in a desert. He's, 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 he's always seeing water, but it's a mirage. It never fulfills and that is satisfies. There is one who can satisfy. And it's your life in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's that power that you begin, but it's also that power by which you continue as you follow him, as you trust him. Well, he says this power produces all things, life that we need for life and all things for godliness. We spoke a great deal about this last week, that God's not stingy, that he is an amazingly generous God. When, when you have real godliness in your life, it means you love the things of God, you walk in the ways of God, and you delight to do so. And God's given you everything. He says, I've given you everything you need to live that kind of life. Now, we say a lot about that, said a bunch of about it last week, but let me just say this this morning. You can't this morning say, well, you know, if, if, if my work situation was better, then I could be holy. Or if, uh, if I had more education, then, then I could be holy. If, or if I had better parents, I could be holy. And if I didn't have to live around all these people and they go to my church, I could be holy. My friend, that's, that's not so. God's power, by the knowledge of Him and His promises, has given you everything you need for godliness and life. Now, when He says He's given all things, we ought to be just careful here. It doesn't mean just anything you fancy takes you want to do that you can do. I mean, you might want to uh, cure COVID next week, but that doesn't mean that He's promised you could do that. You may want to speak 12 languages next week. That doesn't mean you're going to be probably not going to win Olympic gold next week either. But what He has promised to you is that everything you need for the life he's called you to live and to do it with godliness he has prepared for you now when you hear that how do you hear it do you hear that as a reprimand as a rebuke oh i don't have any excuses man and and i need to hear i need to be reprimanded because when i'm not living for god when i'm far away from my cards cold cold from him and i'm living the flesh i got a thousand excuses now, all things I needed to live for him were provided. I just didn't take advantage of them. But I hope you hear more than a, re- a reprimand, more than a rebuke. I hope for many of you, maybe some of you who feel like you're a, a piece of something that fell into a crack of furniture and is forgotten and nobody knows about you, cares about you, that God's forgotten you, I hope you hear in this a word of hope. He really is. God can do what's needed to be done in your life. You, you, can, you can get out of this, this place that you're at. You can... You can Get out of this still ground or you're not moving forward. You can continue to grow and become all Christ called you to be. Well, he says, all this is going to come through a knowledge of him. He says in verse 2, grace is multiplied in the knowledge of God. He says it's through the knowledge of God that he has called us to his own glory and excellence. The Lord has an unending reservoir of grace and power. He does it through the course of the knowledge of him. What does that mean? That means when you come to hear a sermon, you don't come to see something that entertains you or to uh, tickle your fancy. When you open the Bible, you're not just learning for facts or to know answers to this or that or something that intrigues you. It means we come to see and know him. To see Jesus. To love Jesus. To get a vision of Christ. And it's in that, in seeing him, in seeing the glorious person that he is, that man who laughed freely, who loved children, would stop in the middle of all kinds of things to care about them, who, who never met a person who was hurting, who had their heart open to him, that he wouldn't, wouldn't try to and able to help and minister to their needs. That one who loves so much, he will tell you the truth every time, and yet his very holiness and grandeur, doesn't put you off, it calls you in. You need to know him. You need to meet him. And what you see see about him, of course, is his glory and excellence. It's through that knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. The prepositions there can, can be done several ways. It could give a sense of that uh, uh, we become like his glory and excellence, or it could mean for his own glory or excellence, or it could mean by, on the basis of his own glory of excellence, it's could be all three of those. I, I'm not sure. The point is that that Jesus, Jesus by His glory and excellence, means to make you like Himself. 
begin to reflect more and more of who he is. Jesus came. He did not show up with a set of religious instructions. He came with something much higher and much more wonderful than that. Now, he believed the law. He taught the law. He fulfilled the law. But Israel already had the law. They needed something much more than that. They needed divine power that they could find in him. And Peter says that in knowing him, we knowing the one who has called us by name. He called you by name to him, to a life like him, to the glory and excellence that is in him. It's going to bother some of you, but I'm just going to let it bother you. It's biblical, and I believe it's true. I, I believe it's true about me. I believe it's true about you. I don't understand it. I just happen to know it's true because he said it's true. Before the universe itself was a twinkle in God's eye, the living God knew Frank Ellis. He knew everything about me. He knew everything about the life that I've lived to this point, and he knows about all the life that's still to come. He is eternal God. He knows all of my sin, all the stuff that those who know me well can easily name, and all the stuff that people don't know anything about. I hope they never do, but he knows. He knows my thoughts you see, my thoughts are usually worse than actually what I do. He knows all of that. And yet, he looked at this rebel, sinful, selfish, small, little guy, and he said, I'm going to call him by my glory and excellence to become like me. I'm going to save him and make him like me, to share in my very glory and excellence. That's a staggering, amazing thing. What it all comes down to is that this glory of God working in our life is meant to wash away bit by bit all that corruption, all those sinful desires. It is to put in its place something so much more wonderful and to, to over time cleanse me and cleanse me and make me like Christ and do the same for you. And that's exactly what Peter is helping us to see here. John Piper is very helpful. He gives, a, I think, a picture that helps me understand this calling to the glory and excellence of, of Christ. He says, imagine a prisoner of war. He's been in that terrible prison, horrible conditions for a long time to the point that he is, he's just beat. He is despondent. He is in despair. He's given up on life. He's given up on morality. There's nothing. He, he is just rock bottom. And one day they hear that there's going to be a, a prison exchange. And, and suddenly there's a prison guard walking down through the middle and he's pointing to men and he comes to, he comes to you and he points to you and he calls you by name and you're going to be released and sent home and set free back to your family. And in that very news, before you even left the prison, there is power. Your heart is changed. Hope floods back. You have a, you have a, a, a power to, to, to be a different person from that moment on because freedom is in front of you. That's what it means that God has called us by his own glory and excellence, because he has started in something in us, he's going to finish. Philippians 1.6, what he starts, he will finish. And he has called you to nothing less than that. When you know this, when you know the, Lord, the, the, the ways of the Lord, you know his knowledge and his excellence, his glory, then you see everything differently. It doesn't make the world heaven. If you haven't figured it out, it's not heaven. It's not going to be, not until Jesus comes back. But when you see it, it makes everything else look different. One of our daughters-in-law has uh, had some rough, rough weeks. It's feeling pretty rough. It was progressively getting worse and more difficult and more difficult and more difficult. And then um, very suddenly was struck with just overwhelming pain, excruciating pain, beyond what, what I think I could even imagine. It's horrible. She gave birth to my 11th grandchild. <laughs> the perspective changes everything, doesn't it? When you see what it all means, it's, you, you, the pain was just as real, no less, but it changes everything. That's when we know we're bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, that we follow a suffering Savior who said, yes, you're going you're to suffer, you're going you're to deny yourself, it's going to be hard just like it was, for, but, but I have purpose in that. Who James says, thank give it all... Give it all thanks to God when difficulties come because even that, even that's working for your glory. It's working for what I'm doing in your life. All things will work together for your good. You, you, you just see everything differently when you get this perspective because you see Jesus and you're following him and you're working in his life. 
And all that leads to getting hold of these precious and great promises. He called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Do you have some happy promises of God that are right before your eyes and heart right now? Is there something that God has shown you in his word that is, is that, that propels you through life? If there's not, I'm praying that before this day is over, before this week is over, there'll be some of those promises that are living, burning in your heart because they're so powerful in everything else he wants to do. These promises of God can't be just general promises that, you know, you get quoted in church, you hear about them. They have to be, they have to be your promise. You have to know that it's true for you, and you ought to be sure of that. We have uh, our Trail Life boys, our American Heritage girls. They get really excited about a lot of great things in those programs. They love campouts, right, guys? We love the campouts. Imagine there's a, a Trail Life campout coming up, and you've been looking forward to it. The day arrives. The weather's beautiful. You've been looking forward to all this great time. And, and the day of the campout, you're, you, you're running a fever. You're sick. You're trying to hide it from your mama. You can't hide nothing from mama. And she knows you're sick, and you can't go on the campout. Now, the campout's still going to happen. The promise is there, but you're not going. doesn't particularly make you feel a lot better that, well, a lot of my friends, at least they're going to have a great time, but I'm going to be here at home in bed. That makes it more miserable, doesn't it? But the promises of God are like that. They have to become your promises. You have to let the Holy Spirit open His Word to you and help you see what He's trying to do and say in your life. He, he's, Paul said it like this, having the eyes of your ears and hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which He's called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saint, what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might. So you go to the Word. I'm hoping you go to the Word every day. Open it. Don't just, just to read a passage, just to check something. Go out above everything else. Say, God, give me a promise today. Speak to me personally. Show me something wonderful, blessed, something rich, something wonderful in my life. And those very promises are, are the tools that God uses to overcome the temptation to sin. There are all kinds of promises. Peter speaks in 2 Peter 3, 4 of the, the promise of Jesus is coming. Just knowing that, that, that Jesus is coming back. That this world doesn't go on like this forever. That there's new heavens and a new earth. That there's a glorious future that's going to stretch into all eternity. That changes everything. I heard one guy say it's like, it's like you find yourself babysitting someplace. Maybe you're babysitting the preacher's kids. And it's, you're not a very good babysitter and they're not very good kids. You know? It's a crazy night. And everything's going wrong and you just don't think you can stand it any longer. Maybe it's so bad you find yourself tied up in a chair and you, you're about to lose everything and kill some kid or something, and, and then you look at the clock. It's 9.50, and you remember the parents said they're going to be home at 10. I can make that. That's the way the promise is. There's tough things that we face, but it's, there's an end to it. There's a, there's a time. There's a promise there of God what he's going to do in our life. And there's a promise that God indeed is going to finish what he started. He began a good work of you. will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus says outrageous things like, no one will ever snatch you from my hand. He says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am you may be also. We are secure in him. If you are truly his, he has started something in you and he's going he's to finish it all up. I've gone to prepare a place for you. Do you think you're going to get to heaven one day and we're going to look around that, that glorious place and we're going to start and find rooms and houses and, and they're empty? And you say, well, who was supposed to be there? And Jesus has to say, well, yeah, he just didn't make it. It's not going to be that way. He has promised, he has promised to, to bring us fully to his. He says, nothing can separate you from the love of God. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know what the Bible says? It says right now in this moment, present tense, we are already raised up and seated with him in the heavenly places. We're here in this room. I see you. You see me. We're sitting in this place. But we're already in a way I can't even understand. It goes beyond my comprehension. But we're already there. The finished work is before God's already seen. What a glorious, marvelous truth. And if you're in Christ, that's what you have. Those are promises that change everything. Guys, you're sitting there in front of that computer. And you're one click away. You know what you're one click away from. How do you overdo that? You're, you're considering that click because you're thirsty. 
So what's going to be powerful enough to keep you from going that place? What about Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 8? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If you won't live that way, if you won't live with his godliness and his purity, you won't, most of this is just going to completely break down. You can't have this in, in ungodliness. It won't work. In fact, Peter's whole point, you get into the second chapter, he said, if you, if you say, you know, I want faith and righteousness, but I, I, I want to hold on to my ungodliness, he says, don't play that game. It's not going to happen. That's, that, that's a non-starter. You can't be committed and satisfied and comfortable with just ungodly living and, and then say, but I, I got saved years ago and I'm, it doesn't work that way. Something's broken. Something's wrong. And you're tempted for status and position. You want to lord yourself over other people. You're always looking around and, and seeing people and comparing yourself to them. And they have more. They're better than this. Read Psalm 73. Whom have I had in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth which I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. When you want to live for worldly success, all the things that America says, that will make you happy, but it never does. You need to hear Jesus as he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger and you will never thirst. When you want to be greedy and you want to hoard and you can't let go and share, Hebrews 13, 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'll take care of you. There's a promise. There's a promise in God's word. We ought to hold on to that. And then also it comes to divine nature. We won't even get started on that this morning, but again, I remind you, we don't become God, but we do become like Jesus. We begin to taste and experience the very things of God, the character of God. And then we're liberated from that corruption. We're set free from all that stuff that would rot our life and is rotting our life. Learning to live like this it's really what the whole Christian life comes down to the war that we have to face. Every day we have to learn to let our hearts be renovated, recalibrated. Promises that are so powerful and so wonderful that everything in this world compares to nothing. Psalm 37.4 says it well. It's almost a summation, I think, of what he's saying. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. My time's more than up. Thank you for your patience. But Peter's writing here, all this theology, all this stuff that I'm struggling to try to communicate this morning, this is stuff that Peter experienced personally. We talked about that when we started the first week. This is Peter's story. You remember when Jesus fed the 5,000? What a boy, everybody showed up for the free dinner. And then after dinner was over and the preaching started, they all began leaving and before it's done, even some of Jesus' followers leave him. And Jesus looks to his disciples and says, are you going to leave too? And Peter, who got a lot of things wrong, got it right that day. He said, where would we go? Where would we go? Who else has the word of life but you? When you've met Jesus, when you know him, you know there's nothing else out there at all but him. Peter had settled. He was, there was nothing, there's no competition in his life for the person of Jesus. Yet that's so hard to keep in front of you, isn't it? We all know the day that would come when Jesus is arrested. He's going to the cross. And it seems pretty inevitable he's going that way. And suddenly he's being asked about it. He's a follower of Jesus. And suddenly, suddenly the way of denying Christ looked better, looked smarter, looked wiser. I, he chose that. Three times he denied Jesus. But then Jesus is resurrected. And the women come with the report. There's Christ has been resurrected. And the angel has told us to to tell the disciples and Peter. Peter probably think, well, I thought I was one of the disciples, but tell disciples and Peter. <laughs> and three times he's denied Christ. Jesus had told him he would do it. And he said, absolutely not. And he did it. And he had heard what Jesus said. You who deny me before men, I will deny before the Father. Maybe you think Jesus Peter was looking forward to that meeting. I don't think so. But the moment comes and his friend Jesus shows up. And what's the first thing he does? Got anything to eat? Got some fish? Let's have breakfast together. And then you remember three times he says, Peter, do you love me? He says, I know you do. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? 
Peter, do you love me? Three times he denied him, and three times Jesus had reestablished him and made it very clear, made him whole, made him complete. He also told him that, Peter, there's a day coming where it's going to be really hard. Something terrible is going to happen to you. That's pretty clear now. We know what that is. Makes you very sad, doesn't it? <laughs> Peter, according to the best Christian history we have, Peter was crucified like his Savior. And yet God had done such a work in his life that if the history is right, and we think it is, he said, I'm, it's not right for me to be honored by being crucified like my Savior. So they, he insisted at his insistence, he was crucified upside down, nailed by his feet. The feet had walked on water. He had met, he had met the one glory and excellence who directed his life, who filled his life. He's not talking about theory here. He's talking about this is how you live life. It's not a straight line. His wasn't. But boy, it's the way to live. Let us not settle for anything else. Let's stand together, please. Father, thank you for the calling of the Christian life. We lift to you right now in this room and to those who would hear this message this morning. Father, open their hearts and eyes. Do a work in them. Do use the testimony. Use the prayers. Use whatever means you choose. But, but Lord, break into the hearts of those who do not know Jesus, who just can't see what the big deal is about this person, Jesus. Lord, let them see Jesus. And as they do, I know they'll see their sin and help them see also the grace and the hope and the love they can find in Christ. And may they humble themselves and repent and turn from making themselves the center of their life and turn to trust you. And then as that faith and righteousness is applied to them, help them live for you. And help us as a church to be people moving forward, helping one another in this process of becoming like Christ more and more and more until more the very divine nature of the, the grace and peace of Jesus fills our whole being. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.